that you have set this day apart for us and you've reminded us, you've commanded us, you've encouraged us and called us to gather this morning, this one day in seven, this Sabbath. You have told us that a part of our design is this day of rest that we are made to have and this day that we need. And you've called us together to to be reminded of what's true, to orient our lives around the reality of the king that reigns on high, the one that is not just high and lofty, but one is near and close to his people. Indeed, the one who came to dwell with us in the form of Jesus Christ. We're grateful for that reality that you break into our lives and continually remind us of. And this morning, as we come to your word, that you would reveal to our hearts again this morning of this rule and reign. More than that, the provision that comes with it, the great grace and mercy and kindness that we have, that you do not just dominate, but you cause to grow, that as you rule, as you are at work in our lives, that you cause us to grow into you. And so this is a part of this process. Use your word, our time together, your spirit at work in each of our lives to remind us of what's true. So that, Father, when we walk out of here this morning, we will remember just a little more about what's true of you and our lives will be informed by that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you'd open your Bibles to Luke chapter 4. Uh, we are going to look at a passage here that what's interesting about it, and I'll, I'll talk a little more about it in, in Luke 4, is this is the very opening for Luke of Jesus' public ministry is the passage we're going to look at. It's, it orients, if you will, the, the rest of the ministry of Jesus on earth. Everything up to this point is kind of prerequisite and foundational. We have a birth narrative. We have John the Baptist coming on the scene and preparing the way. We have the temptation of Jesus. And now at this point we're looking at it's the very opening account that Luke gives us. And it's critical for us because it frames the whole of the ministry of Jesus. And if we want to understand what the ministry of Jesus, his public ministry, would be about, it's important that we understand this opening account, the way that Luke takes and crafts it for us. So Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 22, I'm going to to read for us this morning. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue. And on the Sabbath day, he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He enrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of our Lord's Savior, our Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming out from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? This passage, as I said, this orients the rest of the book of of Luke. And it really addresses at the very beginning the condition of humanity. 
That what Jesus is coming to do, that what Jesus is coming to accomplish is to address and to meet the needs that we have as people. And Luke wants to remind us of that. He's coming to rule. He's coming to be king. And we know that from the rest of the Gospels. But he's coming to meet our needs. My freshman year in college, a number of years ago, I was in a a micro introduction to microeconomics class. And in, in this class, I don't remember much about it. It was a while ago. I was a business major and an and a economics minor, minor at the time. And I, I don't remember a whole lot about the class. I remember some lines going up and some lines coming down. And there's something being significant about where those lines intersected. And if you want more information about that, you can talk to Bill about what the significance of those lines. But I remember learning about a law. That there was a particular law that they described that, that really described human nature. It, it described how humans interact and how they, how they live. And it was the law of diminishing marginal returns. And I remember as a young Christian learning about this law, it wasn't a principle. It wasn't just something that might happen. This was something that governed humanity. It was the law of diminishing marginal returns. And that might not sound interesting to you, but what caught my interest was this idea that the more a person consumed, the less satisfied they would be with what they consumed. That there was an an inverse relationship between consumption of a good and the satisfaction that came from a good. And I asked the question, why is that? Why is it that the more we consume of something, the less satisfied we are with that thing? And even more than that, why is it a law? Why is it a fixed kind of reality that we are forced to live within? Why is it that I'm less satisfied with something the more that I get? And of course, with Christmas just having passed, and if you've been in that experience, either watching your kids or being a kid, and remember opening present, with each additional present, it seems like there's a a desire for more. And there's less satisfaction. And there seems to be something so real about our condition that that's fixed, that we are not satisfied, that we are discontent, that there's a kind of greed that will always grow that is always there. That indeed we're bound to this reality, that we're bound to this law of diminishing marginal returns in our lives. That there's something corrupt, there's something broken at the very core of our nature. And it's so broken, it's so corrupt that nothing that we have will satisfy it. There's nothing more that we can get that will meet that need, that will ever restore or satisfy us. And as Jesus comes on the scene, as Luke portrays for us Jesus in his public ministry, he comes to the very core of our need. And he comes and he meets that. And he orients the entire ministry of Jesus around his response to our condition, his response to our need. And in this passage, we see the language he proclaims good news to the poor. He proclaims liberty to the captives. He offers sight to the blind, to those who can't see, or light to the darkness, to those who are in darkness. He provides a kind of release, a kind of relief from oppression that's there. And we see that there's this new year that he proclaims, the the year of our Lord's favor. And it's not a year that's marked by a calendar, but it's a year that's marked by the reign of God. It's a year of salvation. It's an era where God says, I'm in control and my kingdom is being established. And it's being established through this person, Jesus Christ. In a sense, through the the teaching and through the healing and the redemptive work of Christ, we see this reign coming and these good things that meet the conditions of humanity that we have. 
Before I get too far, let me back up. The, the book of uh, the Gospel of Luke, there's a few things that's important for us as we look at this passage. First of all, that Luke, as he writes, he has a particular interest in the downcast and the outcast. And the downcast and the outcast. As he writes through it, it's interesting if you read through the first two chapters of this book at Christmas, you will find that he talks about the shepherds and that the angels coming and, and foretelling and telling about the coming of Christ to the shepherds. No other gospel has this account where God would come and give the message of Jesus' birth to such a lowly of people. And so he comes to the shepherds. It's only in Luke that we have the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's only in Luke that we have the parable of the prodigal sons. It's only in Luke that we have the account of Zacchaeus, the tax collector, who comes to salvation and Jesus comes to him and saves him. And of course, as we think about Luke's interest in the downcast and the outcast, we think about Luke being a Gentile himself and not having the most prominent place and access to God in the Scriptures. And he understands indeed that the one who has come has given access now. And so he has an interest in the outcast and the downcast. And we see it represented in this passage. We see that Luke is, is interested as he walks through his gospel with the downcast and the outcast. But he's not as interested in the chronology of the account of Christ as he is with the heart and getting at the core of what Jesus was about and when he came, what he came to do. We understand that Jesus' message, his mission was really more of a rescue mission. It was a king, but it was a king to come and to seek and to save the lost. And so we see that's what, how Luke displays him as we look through this. And as we come to this passage where Jesus is rejected in Nazareth, this passage that I just read, we find that while the other gospel writers, Matthew and Mark, placed it later, it's a later event in chronology that Luke has specifically taken this event which happened later in the ministry of Jesus and he moves it forward and he places it specifically at the beginning of his public ministry for a purpose. That he places it here because he wants to say, if you want to know about the rule and reign of this Jesus as he comes, this is the way you're going to understand it. And while some critics of the Bible would read this and say, well, this is an error, this is an inconsistency, it doesn't belong here, it belongs later in the accounts, we would misunderstand the critical key that Luke gives us understanding what Jesus is really about. It's not misplaced, it's placed here specifically because Luke says, I want you to see what Jesus is really all about. As he reads from the prophet Isaiah and he takes on the role of a servant, the servant that Isaiah foretells would take place he says identifies with him luke reminds us this is this jesus and if you think about a movie i was trying to think of one i couldn't think of one exactly some movies will take an event that that happens later in the storyline and the director on purpose will take that event and will place it at the beginning of the movie and as you re, as you watch the movie that you see the event, and the reason that it's there is because the information that you need to understand the rest of the plot line he wants to give you at the beginning, and that's kind of what Luke does in this passage. He says, I want you to know the plot line. I want you to know that where this is going, and so I'm going to take this event which happened later, I'm going to place it at the beginning, and so that you can understand what Jesus is really all about. So we can really understand what his mission was, and what his rule and his reign looks like on earth. Verses 16 and 17, we see he shows up in Nazareth. He comes, we're told that this is the place that he's brought up. 
that as was his custom, he comes to the synagogue to worship. It's a habit for him to come and to worship at the synagogue. It's a good challenge. It's a good reminder for us as well. But he shows up and he apparently was a guest speaker. And he shows up and he is asked to read and to teach. And that was not unusual in that day. Oftentimes when I return to my home church in northern Missouri, I'll be asked to say something or to pray or do something completely out of the ordinary. And every time I go, I either have a sermon prepared or a prayer ready or something because I know I'm going to be asked to do something when I show up there. Jesus was prepared as he comes. He's given the scroll of Isaiah. It appears that he takes the scroll and he chooses specifically the passage that he has the prerogative to choose the passage he reads. And he reads from Isaiah 61. And there's kind of a, a matrix of verses here that are put together that remind us of the servant that Isaiah talks about. So Jesus shows up and he reads in verses 18 and 19. And essentially what we have here is he explicitly identifies himself as that servant. You remember the servant songs that Bill preached through during Advent in Isaiah 40 through 55. So a whole section in there that talks about the servant who would come, the servant who was the king who would come and who would die. Jesus explicitly identifies himself as that servant, that one who was foretold some 700 years before. And he says, I am he. I am the one that Isaiah talked about. And he shows up and declares that. Essentially, these two verses that he quotes from Isaiah are a kind of encapsulation of the ministry of this servant. That these two verses kind of distill chapter 40 through 55 and remind us, who is that servant? He says, this is what the servant will do. And it describes the good news to the poor and liberty to the captives and sight to the blind. There's other things as well that's a part of that. But Luke for us reminds us that this was what this servant would do. And Jesus tells us and identifies with him. And then you see in verse 20 and 21, he rolls up the scroll, he gives it back to the attendant, he sits down. And in this culture, sitting down was the was the place and point at which he would preach. And so they were anticipating the message at this point when he sits down. And at this point that he gives them nothing that they would expect. That everything they was normal up to this point, everything was ordinary, but at this point he turns the table on them. At this point he says the extraordinary thing when he says, Today, upon your hearing, this passage has been fulfilled. This day, this point in time, as you hear this, this passage that was foretold 700 years ago is fulfilled in your hearing. That I am the the servant of the Lord who's bringing the good news of the kingdom. By my presence here and by my reading of this passage, God's rule and reign has come. And you are experiencing all that that means. And so if you can imagine these people, what they would hear, they were astounded. go, what is this that he's saying? It's It's a passage we're familiar with, but now he's saying... That it's fulfilled, it's completed. And they understood exactly what he was saying, but we see that they did not believe. They did not get a hold of, they could not accept what he was saying as much as they would have liked to. And you can read on the rest of this account where, where Jesus interacts with them and really there's a rejection that takes place in Jesus and they want to kill him. He walks away and, and escapes. But the question I want to ask as we look at this passage As we ask the question, we consider our own condition that we're bound to sin. What is the good news that Jesus brings? How do we understand what this good news is? 
And if the good news of the gospel is that the rule and reign of God has come, when Jesus comes and throughout the rest of the gospels, we see that he says, this is the good news. The kingdom of God is here. It's present. It's present in me. The question we want to ask is, what does this rule and reign look like? Because in this passage, what we have is the content of the gospel. If the good news is God is ruling, what's the content? What does that mean for us? What does his rule look like in our lives? What does it mean that when he comes and sets up and establishes his kingdom, what does that mean for us? And this is a picture, these two verses in 18 and 19, these quotations from Isaiah chapter 61 and 58 for us is a picture of what God's rule and reign looks like. It's a picture for us of the great news that God is in control, that he is in charge. And there's two things I want to point to. The first is that there's great provision for us in his rule and reign. He comes not just to dominate, but he comes to provide and to meet our condition. That a part of what his work is, a part of the role of the servant, is to provide something that we do not have ourselves. It's to meet a need that we cannot meet ourselves. To meet the depth of a need and to meet a breadth of a need that's there. The second thing I want to look at is the implications of this rule and reign. The first is provision, a privilege. The second is implication, a responsibility that we have. I have a 16-year-old son who's just entered a new era in his life. He has a thing called a driver's license. And with the driver's license comes a great blessing, a great privilege with this new reign, this new era that in his life, a freedom that he has to drive. However, a part of being a parent is saying there's a great new privilege you have now with this little card called a driver's license, but there's a great responsibility you have. There's a new kind of responsibility you have to live in this new era, and that's called driving according to the law. That's called and looks like paying for your insurance. It means putting gas in your car. It means checking the oil in your vehicle as you drive and on and on. You know there's responsibilities. And it's, it's both. And the reign and rule of God comes with great provision and it comes with great responsibility and the implications that's there. The provision that we see, one is the depth, that the provision of the gospel, we know this, we've heard this, that the provision of Christ meets the very depth of our need. He comes and meets the most critical aspect of what our condition is. He comes to us. We understand that the fall and sin in our lives has a very pervasive impact. That it goes and is through and through. That as corrupt of a person as I am, as we are, that sin affects my relationship with God. It affects my relationship with my wife and others. It affects my relationship with myself. It affects my relationship with creation. That sin has a pervasive effect. But the greatest need, the greatest effect, the greatest impact that it has is on my relationship with God. That there's an alienation that comes as a result of my, of my sin and my rebellion against God. And that's my deepest need. And we see in this passage, it is depicted by this kind of captivity, this picture of oppression and captivity to sin. Sin throughout scripture is not seen as accidental. 
sin throughout Scripture, it's not seen as just something I kind of back into, but it's rather seen as out-and-out rebellion. It's seen as something that is willful against God. And if you go back to the garden and you read Genesis 3, and you see the account there of Adam and Eve as they took the apple, as Eve was deceived and she took and Adam took, and as they ate together, that there was rebellion in their hearts against God. And in a sense, what they were saying is, I have the right... I hold the claim to self-regulate my life. That I can make decisions about what is right and what is good. Over and above what God has said is right and what God has said is good. And so sin is understood to be rebellion. Not naive indiscretion, but it is willful rebellion against the creator, against the king, against the lawgiver. And that we see that this sin that we fought, we have we have given into, that we have rebelled against God, that we are held captive by. That it is something that that rules us. We've experienced it in our activities and in difficulty of dealing with temptation in our lives. But more than that, it holds us captive to God because we are prisoners because of our sin. We are prisoners because of our guilt and because of the penalty that's due to us. And this captivity is first and foremost a captivity that comes as a result of our payment that is due to God. And what is necessary here is forgiveness. That to be released from this captivity, what must come is forgiveness. And the language in this passage and that Luke uses throughout all of his writings in Luke and Acts is interesting. It is a picture of liberty. It's a picture of release. But the same word is understood to be a picture of forgiveness. In verse 18, we see that he sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and set at liberty those who are oppressed. That same word is understood to be forgiveness. And everywhere else it is used, it is translated as forgiveness of sin. And so you can see that release, that liberty is and is equivalent to forgiveness that God grants to us. And so to release from captivity is the same thing as being forgiven of our sins. That the essential foundational condition of our lives is that we are guilty and that we are imprisoned by our sin and need His forgiveness. That we need to be released from our captivity to our sin. Certainly behaviorally and certainly in its temptation and its hold on our lives, but even more importantly, we need to be released by God because He is the one who holds that against us because of His righteousness, because of His justice. And so we need forgiveness. And it's interesting throughout Luke, we see that he brackets even his gospel with this picture of forgiveness. He opens the ministry of Jesus with this picture of release. And he says he offers, and there's an announcement here of forgiveness, this release from captivity. And he ends, if you turn with me to Luke chapter 24, he ends his gospel with the exact same language. Reminds us that in the middle here, is Christ teaching in his life, his death, and his resurrection in verse 20, chapter 24, verses 46 and 47. This is Luke's great commission for us. He's, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Beginning from Jerusalem, you are witnesses of these things. That language, he says, repentance and forgiveness of sins. It's the same thing as that release. He says, I have come to bring forgiveness, to bring release to captives. And here he says, this is your message now. Your message is that you take this message of release, this message of forgiveness from captivity to the nations. 
And so Jesus comes and he meets our deepest need by his life, his death and resurrection. And he liberates us from our captivity to sin. First of all, our guilt of sin to God. And then secondly, our captivity in the power of sin in and over our lives. And so Jesus comes, and this is his message. In the rule and reign of God, the gospel looks like this. It is forgiveness. It is liberty. It's release from captivity of sin and its reign in your life. But there's more than that that we see in this passage. He goes to the depth of our need. But at the same time, there's the breadth of our need is encompassed by the gospel, by the great news that Jesus gives us here. And if the depth of my need is seen in my captivity to sin and need for forgiveness, the breadth of my need is seen in the impact that that sin has throughout my life. The different layers and different aspects of my life, emotionally and relationally and spiritually, relationships with other people, economically, physically, socially, that, that sin has a pervasive impact on our society, on our lives, on our relationships, in our homes, it goes as far as there are relationships and, and relationship with creation as well. And in verse 18, what we have here is not a checklist of what the servant of the Lord with the king will do, but it's rather a picture for us, a pattern for us. And you see what he's doing. He's proclaiming good news, liberty or release, forgiveness to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, liberty to those who are pr- pr- oppressed, and they proclaim the year of our Lord's favor. It's not a checklist. It's not like the the platform that he's running on. I promise if I'm elected, I will do these things. You know, I'm first going to eliminate poverty. I'm secondly, I'm going to bring eliminate captivity. I'm going to, you know, it's not this checklist. It's not a platform that the Messiah, that the servant of the Lord, the King is running on. It's rather for us a kind of picture. There's a grouping here and one person called it a constellation of metaphors. There's a whole grouping here of images of what he's going to do when he shows up. That Isaiah prophesied and he identifies the servant of the Lord by saying, this is what I'm going to do. And if you remember later on in chapter 7 of the same gospel, when John the Baptist says, and he's in prison and he says, go ask Jesus, are we to expect someone else? Are you the Messiah? And Jesus says, go back and tell him these things. He says, the blind see, the dead have been raised. And he says, the poor have good news preached to them. They are markings of the servant. But more than just markings of the servant of the Lord of the King, they are a reminder for us of this great news of what God's rule and reign looks like. That it comes and encompasses the breadth of our need. But of course, the question we ask when we think about poverty and captivity and blindness and oppression, do these refer to something to be taken literally or symbolically? Do we understand poverty in a financial way, an economic way, or is it in a spiritual way? Do we take these literally or we take them symbolically? And of course, you know, the answer to the question is yes. We take them to be to understand that it's the whole package that sin addresses and is, is so pervasive that the core of the disease is spiritual, that the core of the disease is spiritual, but that the outworking, the byproduct, the symptoms is real economic poverty. It's real oppression. It's real captivity. It's real blindness. It's real darkness in our world that exists and in our lives and in our society. But it begins at the heart. It begins at our greatest spiritual need, 
for Christ. The poverty here that's talked about certainly deals with economic poverty, and certainly Israel relate, would relate to being oppressed in, in all of these. But it's really the poor has to do with those of little value, for those who are in great need. Those who are without means are those poor. And, and Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me and has anointed me to preach, to proclaim good news to those of you who have no means. That as my rule comes, as I come and set up my kingdom, there's good news for you. Because now you have one to entrust yourself to. If you have no means, you have no one to go to. You have no finances. You have no power whatsoever. You are poor in every way, in every respect. I come and I will provide for you. First of all, spiritually, then in every other respect. And he says as well that there's liberty, there's freedom, there's a kind of being released from captivity. This is certainly being bound by sin in terms of our experience and temptation that no longer does the power of sin have to rule over us. But it's also bound by situations that are outside our control. We live in a world, and even though there's a kind of authority we have, there's still many circumstances that we come into, that we live in, that we have no authority, no control over. And he says... I'll release you from them and I'm going to be king even over those circumstances. I will be king in your life and I'll rule even in those circumstances where you have no control. Where there is captivity. And for us, there's a myriad of things that we are captive to, right? The thing I was thinking of, certainly those who are captive in poverty, it's a terrible ill in our society and certainly around the world. And I've seen it firsthand in different places I've been able to travel. But I think about our culture as well in our society. We are held captive by a a great many things too. Not the least is our own affluence. We are captive to the opportunity that we think money and affluence and materials can bring to us. We are held captive by what we think that the next rung on the ladder can bring to us. We're held captive by the opportunity that we think our society or our job or position might bring to us. There's a captivity that we wrestle with as well. A captivity of the blessing of God in our culture brings a kind of curse for us, a kind of captivity. Think about standing in the toothpaste aisle and trying to decide what kind of toothpaste you're going to get. Or trying to look at the cell phone selection and figure out what cell phone do I choose. The plethora of opportunities we have can hold us captive. And as simple as that seems, we see that we are captive by a great many things in our culture that's there that we need to be released from. Blindness and in darkness, there are many who are in need of light, in need of sight, who are in need of understanding what it really means to see. There are many who are imprisoned in darkness, who think they can see but really can't, and are stumbling around in darkness, believing what other blind people say is true. And saying, live this way, go after that, live for that. And thinking that they're people who can see when they really can't. They're people in need of sight. We are those indeed who need the sight that only God can give. As well as oppression that's here. Oppression we understand is to be something that is broken. That there's a weight and it's to be broken into pieces by anything that would rule over us. And the question we ask is, what is the good news of the rule and reign of Christ look like? It looks like certainly meeting our deepest need. But he says, as my rule and reign comes, I will deal with every condition, every situation you find yourself in. It might not look like exactly what you would expect, 
but I am sufficient to encompass the breadth of your need. I am sufficient to encompass the breadth of your situation. And the gospel is sufficient to cover all of our needs. Throughout the myriad of circumstances that we find ourselves in life, that the gospel is big enough and it grows and it changes and is available to us in the rule and reign of God as we understand Christ. I remember my um, first couple years of marriage, If you're married, you might have the same experience. I remember my eyes being opened to the reality of what a great sinner I was. I grew up in the church. I grew up knowing that I sinned, but I wasn't sure that I really was a sinner. And I knew I needed the gospel, I needed forgiveness, but I wasn't sure how much I really needed. I remember those first couple years of marriage. My wife, if she were here, she would be nodding her head. She would agree, and I still am this way. I remember seeing how selfish and how prideful. How rebellious, how contentious I could be. And I remember those first couple of years, my eyes being opened and going, I need this gospel. And I was the first couple of years that we were a minister, a campus minister, taking, sharing the gospel with college students. And I still remember talking to college students about the gospel and going, I need this so much more than you do. I need to be reminded of what's really true, that the provision, that the sufficiency of this message of Christ's provision encompasses everything. And I remember seeing my need for forgiveness in my relationship with my wife, and I still do. And so the gospel grew at that point in my life as it has throughout my life as I've seen my need for the provision that only Christ can offer as he brings it to us and brought it to me. The question I ask you as you think about the myriad of characteristics that make up your circumstances right now, what are the things that make up your circumstances from this past year, from your lifetime? What go in there? Is the gospel sufficient Is it big enough to encompass and to provide for the need and the circumstances you find yourself to be in? And the resounding message from this passage is that as God's rule and reign comes in Christ, it is sufficient. It is big enough. It is great enough to meet our poverty. What we lack, he has. Meets our captivity. What we can't do or free ourselves from, he can. What we can't see, he can see and enable us to see. What is oppressing us He will bring freedom too as we entrust ourselves to him. And as we think about this upcoming year as well, there will be many more things that come that we can't even expect. We don't even know that we entrust ourselves to. And so the great news of God's rule and reign is that not only meets our deepest need, but it encompasses the breadth of our need, the change in need over the course of our lives. He is sufficient to provide for us. So that's the provision. That's the great privilege that we have. But there's... To conclude with, there's some implications of this that's important for us. If we think about this king as he comes and he rules, and he says, this is the blessing, I'm going to provide everything that you need. But guess what? There's a reality that comes with that as well. And the reality we see here is Jesus says in verse, in verse 21, he says, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What's interesting again about that language, this is not a day you can mark in the calendar. When he says, today, this has been fulfilled, it is not a day that you, okay, this point in time. No, this is an opportunity that they had as they heard and they saw this message to respond and to believe. There's a perpetual call for the hearers of this message to respond and to believe. It's a perpetual call to say, today, this is true. Today, I'm called to respond. And for us as believers, for those who have entrusted themselves to Christ, it is a perpetual reminder Every day I get up and I remember that Christ is on the throne and I need to believe and live in the reality of that. 
And for those of us who don't know exactly where we stand spiritually, it's a call to us to bow the knee and to respond in faith and to believe that he is king and to entrust ourselves to him. And so there's a perpetual call for us today, as long as it's called today, each opportunity at the hearing as we read this message, it's a call to us. The second reminder as we think about this kingdom, there can only be one king in a kingdom. There can only be one king in a kingdom. And as Jesus shows up on the scene here, he claims to be the king. Now, his hearers in this case are not able to believe. They are not able to respond in faith. Indeed, they reject him. But Jesus claims to be king and there there can only be one king. If you turn with me to Luke chapter 14. There's a parable that Jesus tells in relationship to discipleship and following him as king that he tells. 14, verse 31 to 33, I'm going to read. But this is in the context of his teaching on discipleship. And he says, as he reminds them to take up their cross... And then he gives them two analogies, two parables. One is the, the tower builder who, who needs to sit down and count the cost of building the tower to see if he can finish or accomplish the work. Otherwise, he'll be ridiculed for not thinking about that. So he says, here's the cost of building the tower. Here's the cost of entering into the kingdom. But then he gives this other parable that follows it in verse 31. He says, or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. And this is his conclusion. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. He tells a story. It's in two kings, right? There's two kings here and there's one king. He says, there's 10,000 men. There's another king with 20,000 men. That's an unusual situation, right? But the one king sits down. He says, I'm going to go to war to this king. We're going to do battle. I'm going to show that I'm the real king. But he sits down. He counts the number of men that he has. And he says, hmm, I wonder if I have enough men to go and really be successful against this other king. Now, whether there's 10,000 or 20,000, it's really irrelevant. Whether there's one or 50 million, it is irrelevant. He recognizes the situation. He recognizes his condition, right? I'm not the king that I thought I was. Going, I was. I'm not really king of much of all because if I go, I'm going to lose. And as he goes, he says, you know what? I'm going to seek for terms of peace. I'm going to recognize I'm not the king. I'm not all that. So I'm going to go to this king. I'm going to acknowledge that he's the real king. I'm going to say, hey, uh, can we strike a deal here? What's the deal that we can have? You know, maybe I can have king with a little K and you can be king with a big K or something like that. And Jesus says, he's very clear here, right? He says it doesn't work like that in this kingdom. He says, you might thank your king, but as you come against this king, you're going to recognize, guess what? You're going to lose. And then he says, what's the terms of peace? What's the terms of peace that Jesus lays out? It's everything. He says, if indeed you want to live in my kingdom, if indeed you want to be my disciple, my follower, if you want to live, it's everything. And it's certainly all of our material possessions, but it's as well the the right to self-legislate. It's the right to regulate our own lives that we lay down at his feet. And we say, you're king, and I'm not. And we raise our hands, and we acknowledge who he is, and we say, there's one king in this kingdom. And that's an ongoing battle, is it not? Every day to say, okay, there's one king in this kingdom, and I am not that king. There is one on the throne, and I am not him. And so the reminder for us as we think about the good news of this kingdom, that there's one king. 
There's a perpetual call to believe. There's a reminder that there's one king. And then finally this, the implication for us as we look at the good news that Jesus offers. And the question I ask, I try to get my grammar right on this because I have struggled with grammar sometimes. And here's the question how it should be said. For whom is this message good news? If I were in Missouri, which is where I'm from, we would say, who's, who, what me- or where is this message, uh, who is this message for? Something like that. But for whom is this message of good news? When Jesus says, he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor and liberty to the captive and sight to the blind and liberty to the oppressed. Who is that good news for? It's for those who acknowledge and recognize their true condition. For those who recognize that their condition is blind. That their condition is one of poverty. Their condition is one of captivity. And to the degree that we understand our condition apart from Christ, we accurately understand where we are, then we will grasp and appreciate the greatness of this news. See, what's interesting is that the news of a, of a life raft in the ocean is inconsequential and irrelevant to the man who doesn't realize that he's drowning. But for the man who recognizes that he is drowning, that his condition is one of a drowning man, that that news is not just life-saving, it's life-transforming. We recognize the gospel that that Jesus brings here is one that for those of us, as we recognize our need, it is available to us. And it is consequential and it is relevant as we understand our condition. The good news that God brings to us this day for this year is that his provision meets our deepest need. His provision encompasses the breadth of our need. No matter what circumstances we will encounter, he is sufficient. He is enough to meet that. At the same time, there's a call to live in the reality of this kingdom. It means that we bow the knee. We acknowledge there's one king. We acknowledge that our need is for him. And as we do that, the beauty of this is we experience the gospel in an ongoing way, in an increasing way. And just like the law of diminishing return or diminishing marginal utility in some aspects of our lives leaves us empty, the more we experience the gospel, it's not a diminishing marginal return, it's an increasing return. Because the gospel grows to fit and to meet the needs that we find ourselves to be in. And the beauty of that is we understand and taste the gospel. What a great motivation to take it to a world that's in desperate need of this message of a king who rules. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come as needy people this morning. We come as those who struggle to be king, and yet we bow the knee and we acknowledge that you are king. Father, would you enable us this morning to receive this message, to not reject them like these did who heard, but to receive it and to live in this era, this realm of God's salvation, to experience the rule and reign of you in and through every circumstances, small and large of our lives, that we would know what the gospel is, the great news that you have come and provided for every need that we have. Father, help us this week to live it out. Help us this week to display it to others. Help us to talk about it, to interact with others. Help us to live in such a way that others would see that this rule and reign is a good thing. And it's one that doesn't stifle, but it's one that it, it actually causes to grow into the people you've made us, you've made us to be. Father, this day as a congregation, there's many needs we have and many more than I can express here this morning. But you know that I'm going to ask that you would be present in the many situations that we have that we would experience this gospel. 
Father, I pray those who are hurt physically, those who are hurt spiritually, those who are ailing economically in their finances and in their relationships, that you would bring healing, that you would bring the provision that only you can bring. I pray, Father, as a church as well as as we think about the ones that we have sent out, many missionaries to take this gospel of the kingdom, that you would empower them with that in their own lives and through their words and through their ministries and the different platforms you have given them, that you would be present with them. I think of Scott and Tracy Ketro in Italy. I think of Leanne Dahl in New York and Marcus Brooks, different places around the world as they bring your rule and reign. I pray that you would be present in and through their lives. And Father, that you would enable us to love this message and to live in it. Thanks for the promise that you're sufficient, that you are enough for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I ask you to stand now for the benediction. Um, the song we're going to sing in response to this, um, you'll find just called enough. Remind us of the enoughness of salvation, the gospel that God has given to us. Receive this now as God's benediction to us. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that's at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.